Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors, up and down the value chain, are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Daniel is a consultant to the Rockefeller Foundation Food Initiative. He previously supported the foundation's food and agriculture strategy refresh, focusing in particular on leveraging innovative breakthroughs in science and technology. Now he supports the foundation's work to advance a more nourishing and sustainable food system. Prior to this role, Daniel worked as an expert for the World Bank in Washington, D.C., on issues around technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. He also served in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Denmark in various roles in Stockholm and New York, helping Nordic companies to internationalize for more than half a decade. Daniel is also the author behind the Food Tech Weekly Newsletter, as well as a mentor to several food tech accelerators and an advisor to a number of startups in the food and ag space. In every episode of this show, we ask guests what their vision for the future of the food system is, as well as what's missing to make that vision a reality. Since 2019, the Rockefeller Foundation has run a Food System Vision Prize, distributing prize money to organizations across the globe that develop and share their vision for the future food system that they aspire to create by the year 2050. Join us as we discuss the vision that Daniel sees developing in the Nordics compared to what he sees happening in other corners of the globe. We also talk about what it takes to turn these visions into realities. I'll also mention that if you're a business leader or entrepreneur with a vision, the Nordic Food Tech Podcast's fall coaching program is kicking off from October, which is all about creating business and leadership breakthroughs and designing a plan to turn your vision into a reality. If you're curious to learn more, you can follow the link in the show description to sign up for a discovery call or go to www.nordicfoodtech.io slash coaching. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. It's good to see you. And I'd like to start by taking a walk down memory lane and hearing about how you got into food. You've worked in a lot of different places and a lot of very interesting positions. So what led you to where you are today? So um, my background is I went to law school in Sweden and business school in Denmark. And since I love technology, I ended up working with the Trade Council of Denmark, helping Danish tech companies to internationalize. And I did that for five years in Stockholm and New York and eventually got tired of that, but I still love technology and and sort of the social impact angle. So um, I decided to go to Georgetown for another degree and studied uh, international relations and how we can leverage technology for social impact. And there around six years ago, I really took an interest in food and ag um, because it's just so fascinating. Um, I worked at the World Bank in D.C. I did some various jobs, but uh, one that really struck with me was this advisory firm where we worked with companies that were really uh, tech-powered and they were in the food space. 
So when, when the Rockefeller Foundation were about to refresh their food strategy uh, around three years ago, I was approached and asked if I'd like to join as a consultant to help with that strategy refresh. And I did so, and uh, I'm still with them as a consultant. Um, on the side of Rockefeller, I'm also a mentor to a couple of food tech accelerators, uh, Big Idea Ventures in New York, Singapore, uh, Bloomer in Stockholm, and Catapult Ocean in Oslo. Um, I'm also an advisor and an angel to a bunch of really exciting food and ag tech startups like NoQuo Foods doing plant-based cheese, uh, Biomilk doing cultured breast milk, uh, Ignitia doing hyper-local weather forecasts in, in uh, tropical areas, Volta Green Tech growing and feeding algae to cows to reduce methane emissions, uh, Iriot, which is wireless drip irrigation management and so on. So uh, that's really exciting. I'm also uh, doing a newsletter called Food Tech Weekly, uh, which is a weekly newsletter on food tech, food and society. Um, so I, I get to sort of explore uh, the food system and its actors from a lot of different angles. And I totally have to plug your newsletter, which is phenomenal. And we'll provide a link to it that everybody can subscribe. But it is a wonderful roundup of a lot of really exciting things that come across your desk that's happening in food and developing. So it makes me feel like I'm reading my best favorite newspaper when it comes to getting the headlines in this space globally. Yeah, I'm um, glad to hear that. Thank you. Yes. And I would love to hear a little bit more about the work you do in the day-to-day. -day. I know you're a mentor and advisor, but in particular with the Rockefeller Foundation or this kind of global food system work that you're focused on, what is it that you do? So uh, I'm a consultant, so it really differs from day to day. Um, but the foundation, just to give you a super short recap, if you don't know about it, has been around for 100 years, uh, have been active in, in food and ag for almost that entire time. Uh, today, they're also doing work in power and health and jobs. But the greatest legacy of the foundation is probably its work in food and especially the Green Revolution from uh, the mid-1940s and 50s onwards, um, accredited with probably saving a billion people from starvation. Um, so the focus of the foundation has always changed based on the most pressing needs at the time. Uh, it used to be feeding people calories. Today, it's more about nourishing people. Uh, and doing so in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, so my work, and, but no matter what, the foundation for its entire history has been very driven by, by science and technology and evidence and, and, and innovation. So it's a very data-driven um, organization. Um, my work has been revolved around everything from um, helping grantees with various things to uh, working on, for example, the Food System Vision Prize, which has been a large initiative over the last year, um, walk of, where, where the foundation has worked with uh, Open IDEO and Second Muse to uh, solicit ideas for positive food system futures from all over the world. Um, so it's really high and low. It's the sort of direct impact that can have impact uh, in the very near term. It's also the sort of more moonshot kind of projects that you know may or may not pan out. Uh, but if they do, they could really be game-changing um, because there's some really exciting things and research going on around our understanding of the gut microbiome and uh, 
the biochemical com components of food and so on. And Rockefeller is at the forefront of a lot of that. So it's an exciting organization to consult with. And in terms of this Food Vision Prize, you guys sourced ideas globally of what the food system was going to look like. What, what did you see? How did it differ from different parts of the world and all the entries you received? What was the conclusion of this probe? Right. So um, just to give you some sense of why the foundation decided to do this uh, Food System Vision Prize, if you, if you look at books or movies or TV shows that paint a picture of, of, of the future, almost all of them are negative or, or uh, dystopic. Uh, Blade Runner, Matrix, Minority Report, uh, WALL-E, Hunger Games, V for Vendetta, Black Mirror, Mad Max, Handmaid's Tale, I can go on. Um, so there are all these dystopian visions and they're, you know, they're useful because they, they provide sort of a warning of the future we don't want, but without a positive vision of, of the future that we do want, um, we can't really unleash all the creativity and entrepreneurship um, that, that we need to transform uh, the food system. So, so the foundation created a food system vision prize. Uh, asking communities all over the world to describe what their ideal vision for the local food system should look like by 2050 using systems thinking and thinking about things like the environment and, and, and diets and technology and economy and culture and policy and how everything interacts, the whole system um, in your specific you know, region or, or home geography. And um, more than... 1,300 visions were submitted, which is fantastic. Over 4,000 global uh, NGOs and nonprofits and research institutions, farmer-based organizations, restaurants, universities, government agencies, indigenous people uh, created and submitted, uh, submitted visions. And, um, and earlier here in August, the 10, uh, top 10 finalists were announced. Um, and it, it's really hard to pinpoint if they all shared some... Um, um, you know, similar narratives uh, because there are many, many food systems uh, have different challenges, but of course, everyone aspires to advance a future which is more nourishing, which is more sustainable, more regenerative, uh, where, where culture and community can flourish. Uh, so I'd really encourage everyone to go to foodsystemvisionprice.org and, and check out just a couple of visions because it's really inspiring. Um, did, did people submit paintings because i've done some of this work where you try to basically create comic books of the future and challenging the fact that when you go into the boardroom instead of keeping a powerpoint you actually show them a comic book which is to say this could be a reality of what the store of the future looks like or the kitchen of the future looks like and once people see it they believe it more so how did people submit their entries in terms of crafting this vision so Yes, people did add a lot of visuals, whether it was videos or um, infographics or animations or other types of visuals where they really tried to show their visions of the future and how, uh, how it impacted and interacted with the local community. So, so people really leveraged that opportunity. And I think you know, pictures and stories are incredibly powerful in and inspiring and encouraging and showing what's, what's possible. Um, so yeah, people employ that to a great degree. So 
when we talk about that common narrative that you see developing, having reviewed all these entries, what's standing out to you in terms of where we're going in the vision for our future food system? Wow, that's that's uh, that's a tough question. Um, I think um, a lot of, a lot of uh, groups are pretty cognizant of the things that are not working well, whether it's health issues related to the foods we're eating, environmental issues, um, sort of community issues where um, farmers may not be able to uh, make a living on farming or um, urban areas have become very disconnected from understanding where and how food is grown. So I think there's a lot of aspiration in, in trying to create a food system in, in various ways, which, which provides people with more nutritious foods produced in a more environment, environmentally sustainable way. Some of these visions are very, uh, very tech heavy. So they're, they're relying on using a lot of new novel technologies, whereas others may focus more on maybe going back to our roots of, of a more regenerative ag system. Um, so, I think it's really hard to say if there's some common themes. We we a lot of the, these visions uh, identified some common challenges, and and are trying to tackle them in different ways. Uh, and they're also what's also fascinating is a lot of these groups interacted and commented on each other's visions and and sort of uh, tried to collaborate in in helping each other. So it's a very uh, um, collaborative effort. What I'm wondering what those commonalities were, I think you kind of answered it, but what were the things that popped out that they might have commented on or they were like, hey, I think the same? Right. So so some of these visions, for example, uh, were, um, were focused on what cities should look like in the future. And, and keep in mind, um, already today, around half of, of the world's population lives in urban areas. By 2050, it's going to be about 70%. So most people, most of us in the future, will live, will live in the cities. Um, so people mention things like, well, we're going to have extreme weather. We're going to have a changing climate. We're going to have challenges with public transport and long commutes and living expenses. And, and it's going to be hard for the remaining biodiverse areas to, to remain we, we have this shift in diets as the global middle class is growing and people are urbanizing. So people are switching to, to, to a more Western diet with more ultra processed foods and, and maybe junk food. So there's health issues with that. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a bunch, bunch of challenges and then people look at, well, how can we, how can we have more, uh, more, for example, data driven systems, new technologies to combat food waste. How can we, maybe shift to more plant-centric diets or planetary health diets? Um, can we use urban farms or, or local food hubs to sort of educate the community and grow food and process foods and, and educate people about what food does to us? Um, can, we, can, we, can we have sort of... Um, can we build a food system which, which drives better health outcomes and sustainability outcomes. So there's, um, there's just a lot of ideas around building these hubs uh, that can be either farms or educational centers or 
community centers, uh, kitchen labs where people can learn how to cook good food. Um, there's, uh, so I, I really found the sort of urban visions fascinating because that's where a lot of us will live in the future. Um, and novel technologies will also, I guess, to some extent, uh, enable us to grow food in new ways, whether it's indoor farming or hydroponics or indoor aquaculture systems or even uh, bioreactors where we can grow uh, dairy or egg or, or meat proteins in the future. So it, w- it was inspiring to read all these visions. It's inspiring just to hear you name all the different things that people are thinking about and what they're hoping to act on. And I can hear that spaces and community will continue to be important in the future. That's not going away. What I wonder and what I think is partly beautiful is that there's no right way that we're going to create the food system. And we live in a a big world where there's a lot of different possibilities and there probably shouldn't be one standard. So it's about enabling and empowering people to create the local solutions that fit where they are, maybe based on some common values of where we want to be as people. I'm wondering how you empower so many different kinds of visions. Of course, it's a big step just to speak it out loud and put it on paper, share it with others. But how do you empower people to take action from there that they actually put it into reality and make it happen? Yeah, so I think a lot of these groups actually already did. Um, they took action. They, they were inspired. And, and even though they may not have made it to the, to the top 75 semifinalists or the top 10 finalists, they still felt that they managed to build something in their community that they wanted to advance. So um, a lot of them felt empowered just by participating. But I think it's important that you mention action because, you know, like Mandela said, vision without action is just a dream. And action without vision is, is, is just like spending time. But if you combine action and vision, then you can change the world. So what we're doing now is uh, the foundation is uh, building this accelerator for the te- top 10 uh, teams to enter, the, um, uh, to enter with their visions and, and see how they can actually, actually, um, actually turn these visions into reality. So, um, so they will be supported in various ways, whether it's with uh, visual artists or convenings once we're allowed to meet again in person. Uh, but there's, there will be a lot of uh, support for that. Of course, there's also on the website, there are toolkits and there's been a lot of virtual meetings that try to equip uh, these visionaries with the tools that they need to uh, turn their visions into actions. So, um, so that's the hope, at least, that you know, step one is vi- envisioning the future that you want, and step two is actually to start building it. And in, when we talk about visions, I think one of the things you said that's important and fascinating is that you this work has been happening for a very long time, and the visions that we've had of where we want to take the food system have changed over time. So can you take us back through history a little bit in terms of saying maybe how the vision of the food system was some 50 years ago versus what you're starting to see come out today in the work that you're doing? Right. Um, So I think in terms of 50 years ago, people just had, um, there were different challenges, right? So People back then were 
focused on eradicating hunger. And I guess we still are to some extent. But 50 years ago, or after the Second World War, the big challenge was we have all these hungry people in the world. They're not making ends meet in terms of feeding themselves, in terms of countries feeding themselves. And we know, know that the population is increasing. So um, what can we do about this? And, and the answer in part was, I guess, the Green Revolution, where, where scientists worked to um, develop new seeds and, 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 and use irrigation and chemical fertilizer and machinery and, uh, and sort of evidence to try to increase yields. And, and we succeeded. Uh, it, it, it took um, two decades or so, and then the Green Revolution had spread from Mexico to India, Pakistan, Philippines, Turkey, and beyond. Um, so we managed to feed the world. We never had this um, Malthusian situation with starving people, but uh, this also created some other problems in terms of environmental degradation, in terms of maybe monotonous diets uh, where... A lot, of, a lot of the calories we eat in the world today actually come from just a couple of, um, couple of crops. Like if you take wheat, rice, and corn, that's 50% or something of the world's calories. And if you add barley, potatoes, sugar, palm oil, uh, soy, you get to like 75%. So there are very few crops that have sort of taken over the world. Then we break, break them down into ingredients and... and um, and build new products with them, but it's, it's, it's a fairly monotonous food system. Um, so you could say the food system visions of 70 years ago were about feeding people calories. Today, maybe we have other visions about not just feeding people calories, but actually nourishing people and, and doing so in a way which is, um, which is good for the uh, environment. What I love remembering that history or kind of walking through it is just a reminder that we have come together as a global community to solve hard problems before. Of course, every time you create something, there is some kind of reaction and sometimes we create problems in our wake. But I just think it's a good demonstration of understanding how we got to where we are today and the fact that we did succeed in doing some good things along the way, I think, you know, depending on which side of the coin you look at it. With that said, I'm curious what you see developing in the Nordics versus in the rest of the world, because now you sit mainly in Stockholm, but you've had the opportunity to travel and work globally with all these different food system ideas. And as we know, we see this ecosystem developing in the Nordics. So how do you see that compare to the other work you see happening in the world? So uh, the Nordics have great tech ecosystems in terms of in terms of human capital and, and the sort of the culture, the entrepreneurship culture, the financing available, um, policy, I guess, to some degree, um, support infrastructure. I think in terms of food tech ecosystems, there are many out there that are stronger than the Nordics, uh, whether it's the US or the Netherlands or the UK or France or Singapore or Israel. There are just other geographies with much stronger food, food, uh, food tech ecosystems. But I do think the, the Nordic food tech ecosystem is growing. And when I think about the ecosystem, I think about five, six sort of main things like policy, um, markets, like are there early adopters and, and relevant networks, 
human capital? Do you have universities and other ways that train relevant labor, um, support infrastructures uh, like, um, like incubators and accelerators and conferences and all of that? Uh, the culture, is it like risk averse or does it like promote entrepreneurship? Do you have role models? Um, financing from seed, pre-seed, seed, Series uh, A, um, grants, other types of financing. And when, when you look at this sort of these key things for an ecosystem to flourish, I do think the Nordics is, is growing uh, in a good way. We, we have new... Um, funds dedicated to food tech popping up, like Nordic Food Tech VC in Finland. You have Trellis Road in Sweden. You have new accelerators like Bloomer, which started in Stockholm fairly recently. Um, you have uh, one of the actual leading ag universities in the world, the Swiss uh, University of Ag Sciences is here. Uh, so I, I do think you have some of the basic ingredients in place to, uh, to have a great ecosystem. Having that said, it's still very small and it's not super integrated. So, uh, you know, there's not too much interaction between folks working in food tech in Sweden and folks working in food tech in Norway or, or, um, or, or Denmark or Finland. Uh, it's hopefully changing, uh, but it's, uh, it's not there yet. Mm. And when you think of what you've seen in other places, what is it that we need to aspire towards or implement? What are we missing that's going to strengthen the community we have in terms of elevating it? Yeah, great question. Um, obviously, you need um, you need entrepreneurs. It, it starts with the people. Um, so you need people that see the big issues of the food system, that it's not... Um, that it's not promoting great health outcomes because the food system is sort of driving the healthcare system bankrupt. You know, poor diets are number one cause of, of premature death. Um, it's not a great system for from from a sustainability perspective either. Um, so you, you need you need entrepreneurs that understand that we have all these issues. We need we need better diets. We need more productivity. We need to reduce food waste. And, and, and they need to just start building. Um, and then, of course, it's great if there are people that have done it before, if they have role models, or if at least there's an incubators and accelerators, and there's not too many of them. You need access to financing. You, you need to know where to look uh, for early stage financing, whether it's angels or, or VCs doing pre-seed and seed. Um, you need somewhere to be. Uh, some of these companies um, are... Are, they need sort of kitchen labs or lab space to actually do their R&D. There's not too much of that. So they have to go to uh, sort of biotech for health kind of spaces, uh, which might not be um, optimal. Um, there's regulation. Um, that maybe it's more of an EU level issue, but th th there are food innovations happening elsewhere, elsewhere whether it's... Um, uh, plant-based meat or or insects as food, uh, which isn't happening here because the regulations are basically big obstacles. So there's a reason why Impossible Foods went to Asia before it went to Europe. Um, I mean, Asia, of course, is a huge market for meat, but it's also uh, the regulatory environment is just uh, more favorable than Europe because we have this uh, aversion towards uh, gene editing and so on. Um, same thing with with insects as food, which has also held up the industry, um, the regulations or lack of regulations. 
So, you know, regulatory is another issue uh, that um, you need to look at. So I, I think there's a bunch of things you could do to, um, to boost uh, the food, food tech and ag tech ecosystem in the Nordics. One of the biggest themes on this show is that almost everybody comes on and says what they're missing is more collaboration and that they think there's a lot of good work happening, but we're not necessarily talking to each other. So that integration, but it's also the big question is whose responsibility is it to lead that integration? You know, is it on the government? Is it on the entrepreneurs to self-organize? Is it the VCs who are putting in the money? Like who's going to be, is it all of them? But this is one of the things that I think is still the question to be solved is what's the cavalry leading the charge, you know, who are the people or the scene or whatever else is happening. And yeah, that's, that's something I think about often. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's really hard to, um, to build a cluster um, from scratch. It's hard for, for governments to do that. Many have tried and say, you know, we're, we're sort of the Silicon Valley of this and that. Um, so I think it comes down to passionate people um, that want something better for where they live and dare to take risks, whether it's uh, starting an event or conference or uh, doing some agent investing or actually starting a company or um, mentoring younger entrepreneurs um, and people who want to give back. So I, I think it starts with people um, and, and then it takes people like yourself who are, who are sort of connecting the dots, uh, people doing podcasts or newsletters or putting out events and conf- putting on events and conferences, but really trying to connect the dots and, and really create an ecosystem where people uh, feel they're part of something bigger, um, where, they, where they understand what else is out there and how we could work together. And um, so I, I, don't have, I don't have the answer. I just think step one is, is sort of to try to connect the dots like you're doing and other people are doing. Uh, and then you're sort of quickly finding out what's lacking. I know, for example, uh, I mentioned uh, Ignisha earlier doing hyperlocal weather forecast. I know they went down to the Netherlands to do recruiting. So instead of recruiting in Scandinavia or the Nordics, they went to the Netherlands because they couldn't find the labor they needed here, which is weird because this is a region of, you know, 20, 25 million people. There should be people with the relevant skill set, but apparently there weren't. There wasn't. Uh, so, so that's, you know... Um, that's an that's evidence to me that we still got some way to go here. Mm. And I think one thing that always stands out for me when I've also read about past, uh, past innovation clusters and how they built it or what the kind of secret ingredient was is there's always been a willingness to pay it forward and to be part of a community where you put the vision above the individual work or the ego. So if you hear someone needing help you make the introduction, you pay it forward. You say, I know this investor or I know this production facility or I know this job that's hiring, whatever it might be, but you start creating momentum in the fact that everybody wants to connect to something bigger. And that's where I think uh, talking to each other is the most important or having these forums and these places to go makes a lot of sense. And that's why I also love your newsletter because every week I get <laughs> I get my own ingestion of uh, of cool things that are happening and opportunities to grab a hold of well it's it's a gateway drug into the food food tech space you know you, you want to keep it uh fun and curious and uh and not take yourself too seriously 
but do sort of point out the challenges we're fighting and and um, and opportunities that are out there and try to connect the dots and connect people um, and inspire other people to do something similar. Um, so, um, I, and, and, you know, again, the Nordics have got pretty good ecosystems when it comes to tech in general. So now it's just about building this food tech or ag tech uh, ecosystem as well. Uh, we know how to build really strong um, ecosystems, tech ecosystems that create a lot of innovation and, and cool startups and unicorns even. And uh, so I think we should be able to do that uh, for food as well, because we have a lot of um, the necessary pieces uh, here. So it's just about starting to build. Yes. And that global mindset, again, it's not just about keeping it in the Nordics. It's about taking it beyond. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask the question now that I ask everybody, which is what is your vision for the future food system in 10 to 15 years? Yeah, I'm going to sound like, you know, a broken record. Uh, but I, I do hope um, we can build a food system which is environmentally sustainable, meaning the way we produce food today does not jeopardize our grandchildren's ability to produce food in the future. So I want it to be sustainable. Um, I want it to be nourishing, meaning we, we don't just fuel our bodies with calories, but we also actually nourish our bodies and protect them from from harm uh, by eating better. And we, we sort of know the evidence around this already. We should eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, seeds and nuts, legumes, fish. Uh, we should eat less sugar, sodium, saturated fat, processed meats. It's, the evidence is there. It's just like we're not really listening to the evidence, right? Um, but there's, there's new exciting research and innovations coming out around personalized nutrition, understanding the gut microbiome, and understanding what food is right for you and me as individuals. So I, I hope we can have a more granular understanding of, of, of food and the biochemical uh, co uh, contents of food and, and um, you know, whether you should eat more broccoli and I should eat more carrots. And you know, maybe you should even eat more broccoli from a certain region because it's better for you. Um, we don't know that yet. It's, it's sort of this, this, uh, this nutritional dark hole. Um, we, don't have, we don't have all the information we want yet. But, uh, but I do think we're going to have it, and, uh, and that can create a more nourishing food system. So more nourishing, more sustainable, a food system where, which is transparent, which is more um, uh, where we understand where our food comes from, how it was produced, um, what it, how it, how it sort of uh, impacts our, our health and our bodies. Um, and, you know, fundamentally food is about joy. It's about community. It's about friends and understanding where you come from and where you are, where you want to go. So, um, I, I hope we can, uh, get to that point where, uh, where, where food is a source of joy and, uh, not a source of, uh, polarization. Hmm. And what do you think we're missing to get there? Yeah, great question. I, I think um, evidence is one thing. Um, we Nutrition science isn't great in the sense that there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, we, we also haven't really focused on sort of the environmental impacts of, of food production, but that's changing. And once we have 
a granular understanding of what it actually takes, then we can start tweaking the system and, and maybe producing food in different ways. Uh, it doesn't have to involve technology or innovation. It can just be, you know, regenerative agriculture, maybe, um, that instead of using pesticides, we can use uh, multi-cropping where, where you plant different seeds uh, next to each other on the field. So you have natural predators. So you don't have to use as much pesticides. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, more technology or innovation. It can just be uh, uh, scaling up methods that work. Um, so I, I guess we just need more smart people uh, interested in, in uh, improving, improving the state of the food system going into this and, and, um, and contributing um, to, to sort of drive the change we want to see. And we are recording this in the middle of COVID. So I'm wondering if you feel COVID has thrown all kinds of challenges at the food system, many of which are still unfolding. But I wonder if you feel like it's going to be accelerating us towards this future or it's actually hindering us or what you think the role of this moment in time is going to be. Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that this entire crisis started likely with a food choice that someone had craving to eat some sort of meat, likely in China. And, uh, and that turned into a health crisis, but it also turned into a food system crisis where, where um, border closures led to the situation where we, where we can't get migrant labor in the US or, or in Europe to harvest our, our crops. Um, supply chain issues in the meat, uh, meat supply chain in the US. Um, so there, of course, this, it's, it's impacting the food system directly in different ways. It's accelerating some things like automation that if you don't have migrant labor, you have to use sort of robots or automation. So it's accelerating this trend towards automation in, in agriculture and in processing, even in retail, in contactless solutions, online grocery shopping, um, people shift their consumption patterns. Um, maybe we're going to have more vending machines, I don't know, with fresh food. Um, I think there's also a realization that sadly and unfortunately people with pre-existing conditions like obesity, high BMI, blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, when they contracted this virus, their health outcomes was much worse. Uh, they, they suffered hospitalization and death to a much higher degree than people that had you know, normal BMI that didn't have cardiovascular issues and diabetes and, and, um, and so on. And a lot of these pre-existing conditions are diet related. So I think there's a greater realization that we need to shift our diets uh, to improve our health outcomes, also to protect us from the next pandemic, sort of lower the risk of, of, uh, of getting sick, getting seriously sick and dying from this and future pandemics. And I, I think there's also going to be a drive towards more plant-based food because a lot of people have concerns about the way we, um, we raise and slaughter animals. Um, sort of the, the, the industrial farming of animals is, is uh, perhaps creating the preconditions for the next pandemic. And uh, so I think there's, there's a shift towards plant-based uh, options for some people as well. 
So, so the food system is, has been impacted a lot by COVID in, um, in various ways. And I think it will also accelerate some trends. Um, at the end of the day, you know, diets are very sticky and people will go back to eating what they love. Uh, but maybe we'll produce that in different ways. And, and may, maybe people will be more aware that, you know, if, if you have all these uh, diet-related diseases, uh, you, you're going to suffer pretty badly when the next pandemic hits. So um, I, I hope this is a wake-up call. I hope it's a chance to embed some better values into the food system. Uh, I, I, th I don't think food has ever been higher on the agenda, um, you know, um it's not a silver lining it's just you know it's it's people have realized how vulnerable the entire food system is how how interconnected everything is and um, that we're not stronger than the weakest link and in this case it seems that the weakest link was you know food safety uh, in china uh, but pandemics have started in in the middle east in uh, in the U.S., uh, in in other regions as well, so it's not it's not something which is confined to that geography. And one thing I think I'll always remember when I'm old is how people put food top of mind in this time period, and there was a lot of fear around not having access to food or what's going to happen, and people kind of freaking out. That I definitely think in terms of developing people's relationship to food it became front and center again and something that you realize you shouldn't take for granted. And we're pretty lucky for the convenience that we have every day and the accessibility we have every day. Um, so it's definitely going to be interesting. We'll have to reconnect in a couple of years and see like, what's, where are we now? What's happened now? Um, before we wrap up, I just want to ask if there's any collaborations you're looking for and then what's the best way for someone to contact you if they were inspired by the conversation today or wanted to get in touch, wanted to subscribe to the newsletter, whatever it might be? Yeah, so people can always find me on LinkedIn or Twitter and reach out to me there. Um, the food newsletter is, is at tinyletter.com slash foodtechweekly. Um, in terms of collaborations, um, I guess I'm always from a personal perspective as an advisor to food tech startups, I'm always interested in, in solutions that can advance a more sustainable food system and uh, a more nourishing food system. Um, ideally with some, you know, tech elements that can help scale things up fast. Um, for, for the Rockefeller foundation, um, their, their focus areas is on their website. Um, so, um, People interested in, in what the foundation cares about can, can read about it on the website. Um, Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and sharing a little bit about what you know. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Annalisa. All right, guys, that's all for today. You can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io. And if you like what you hear, please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions, and we can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther, and let's spread the word about the Nordic food tech ecosystem together. See you next time.